This November will mark the 60th anniversary of the assassination of U.S. President John Fitzgerald Kennedy. 60 years may seem like a long time to some people, but for the conspiracy-minded, there's no such thing as too much time. And so people still continue to talk about the events on November 22, 1963 in Dallas, Texas, and speculate and wonder and weave narratives that, while interesting, are often based on nothing but supposition. To talk about that with me today is Fred Litwin, a man who used to be, in fact, a JFK conspiracy freak. As his first book, titled I Was a Teenage JFK Conspiracy Freak, attests. He then followed that up with On the Trail of Delusion, Jim Garrison, the Great Accuser, looking at the case of Jim Garrison, the attorney who tried to file suit against several people for the assassination, as he saw it, of the president, and which was a key piece in Oliver Stone's film, JFK. Well, not finished with the topic, Mr. Litwin has now written a new book, this time taking aim squarely at Oliver Stone himself. The title of the book is Oliver Stone's Film Flam, The Demagogue of Dealey Plaza. Hi, Mr. Litwin. Hi, how are you? Excellent, excellent. Uh, so, uh, lots of free time on your hands uh, with uh, COVID and everything, and bam, a new book comes out. Yeah, you know, COVID, the lockdown really forced me to do a lot of writing. Uh, I actually did a daily blog every day for, you know, almost a year. And uh, that allowed me to do a lot of research. And people started actually sending me emails. Uh, what are you going to do with all this research? It should go into a book. And uh, voila, uh, a new book has been born. Bam, just like that. It's always nice to grow the family. I'd like to thank Mr. Litwin for talking to me today, and of course, all of you for listening to this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Don't forget, you can subscribe, I say again, to this podcast, and if you like what we do, you can donate via our Buy Me A Coffee page. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in The Clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. So, Mr. Litwin, let's give a real quick recap. Uh, it was uh, January last year that uh, we first spoke about your book on the Trail of Delusion. We covered a whole bunch of specifics uh, in that conversation of, you know, the magic bullet and the umbrella man and all these different uh, aspects that conspiracy theorists um, really uh, glom onto, as well as a little bit about why you do what you do. So your first book was I Was a Teenage JFK Conspiracy Freak, and then you kind of shifted gears on the whole topic. That really came about because um, 
a conspiracy theorist, James Eugenio, said, well, you know, uh, your chapter in I Was a Teenage JFK Conspiracy Freak about New Orleans doesn't use, uh, you know, all the primary material that was released by the ARRB. And at the same time that that happened, somebody on my one of my email lists posted, by the way, all of Jim Garrison's files are online at the National Archives. So I said, oh, I might, I might as well have a look. And I started going through the Garrison files, and I started noticing crazy memo after crazy memo. And by the time I got to like 20 or 30 ridiculous memos, I said, there's a book here, because he's actually far worse than I thought. So, like the conspiracy-minded often say, you literally did your own research. Yeah, and then that led me to actually travel around the United States to every single archive I could find with primary Garrison material. I went to Dallas, I went to New Orleans, I went to Boston, I went to the National Archives three times in Maryland, I went to the Library of Congress. Uh, wherever I can go, I traveled to find primary documents, and I've got, I think, the largest collection of primary garrison material uh, anywhere. Wow, that's, uh, that's quite something. Now, I got to ask, that seems like a lot of effort uh, and time and, and at least some money. Uh, granted, you, you're thinking you'll write a book out of it and maybe recoup some of those costs, but uh, you'll never get the time back. Why? Why? Uh, it's it's so long ago. Why this? Why spend so much time on JFK? Well, JFK is sort of the ur-level uh, conspiracy theory. And from JFK, everything else sort of uh, arises. And it's the ultimate conspiracy theory in that it can be used by both people on the right and people on the left. I mean, it used to be all, only people on the left would talk about the JFK assassination because they wanted to prove a rightist plot. But now you see people on the right really getting into the JFK conspiracy because it helps them prove uh, the malignancy of the deep state. And so both right and left are sort of enjoying it right now. And I think it's time to sort of like put this one to bed um, and stop all this nonsense. Fair enough. So uh, the second book focused on Jim Garrison, obviously, because you have all those materials. But then you just you you just weren't done. You said, you know what? Oliver Stone needs to be held to account here. And I will say, like the the film JFK is extremely well made. Uh, it blurs documentary footage with uh, reenactment footage so seamlessly that I remember at the time there was some talk uh, among the thinkers in society that. Hmm, you know, um, this is a little bit maybe potentially dangerous, this technique, because it does blur in perhaps the inattentive's minds the difference between, say, editorializing, which is very much what Stone is, is doing with a lot of it, and actual documentary fact, and especially with the handheld camera and the, making things look like they're, you know, footage from security uh, cameras and so on. Uh, it really does kind of blur those lines. And now, of course, ironically today, uh, this is, we're just swimming in that molasses soup of nobody can really figure out what the hell is or is not authentic. That's true. And I think uh, Oliver Stone said that he wanted to create a counter myth to the, the Warren Report. And I think this is pretty telling. I mean, if you think the Warren Report was myth, okay, fine. But now to say, I'm going to do a counter myth. Well, that's not really good either. And of course, as you know, he, he did blur the lines between fact and fiction. But now, you know, he came out in 2021 with a documentary series, a so-called documentary series. And that's where it gets really dangerous because now he's actually uh, in the area of trying to tell the truth. But of course, it's complete fiction. Yeah. Didn't he say something in there like uh, conspiracy theory has now become fact? 
That's right. Conspiracy theories are now conspiracy facts. And he, he said that in the new documentary. I have a whole chapter on that um, in my new book. Um, you know, it's it's easy to say that. But in fact, he didn't prove that. And, and of course, the, the people who ran the Assassination Records Review Board don't agree with that at all. They don't believe that their work in uncovering all these documents proved a conspiracy. Uh, they take great exception to that. So you mentioned the Warren Commission, and one of the things you talk about in the new book is uh, how it was formed uh, and all that. Very brief, you know, 60 seconds or less for people that don't know. What is the Warren Commission? Well, the Warren Commission was a presidential commission that was started by Lyndon Johnson to investigate the the JFK assassination. And he realized he wanted to head off uh, investigations by the Congress uh, and by the state of Texas. And the only way he could do that was to have a blue ribbon panel of distinguished people to investigate. Right. So what uh, what are your uh, thoughts on how it was formed? Like I know I know later President Gerald Ford, um, who became president, much like Johnson, because the previous guy left office, though for different reasons, um, he was on the panel. Yeah, uh, Lyndon Johnson named two senators, two congressmen, and two distinguished people to the Warren Commission. Um, I think they were all honorable men. Um, two of the people that were named to the commission were named because of, of uh, Robert Kennedy, who asked that uh, Alan Dulles, one of them, to be on the Warren Commission specifically. Um, so it was a fine group of people, and I think that they uh, they were honest men who did an honorable investigation. Oliver Stone would tell you that, that uh, basically the CIA lobbied to have Alan Dulles put on the Warren Commission. You know, he was there to protect the CIA, etc. I, I don't disagree with the fact he was there to protect the CIA, but I think it was Robert Kennedy who wanted him on the, the Warren Commission, I think largely to protect the Kennedy interests in keeping the plots against Castro secret. There were a lot of plots against Castro. I mean, you, I remember, I don't remember when it was, but it was, it was some years ago, but then, you, know, you have all these crazy stories coming out. Oh, maybe we can give him an exploding cigar. Maybe we can put something in his um you know lotion or something that will cause his beard to fall out and then he'll become emasculated uh in front of the cuban uh patriarchy and uh, and have to step down like all these kooky ideas yeah the kennedy administration was really determined to get rid of castro and uh, you had Operation Mongoose. I mean, in my book, I actually produce a memo uh, from a meeting in which uh, Robert Kennedy sort of read the riot act saying, you guys are not doing enough sabotage. We need more. There was a rabid feeling in the Kennedy White House about we, we have a problem here in Cuba and we've got to get rid of this guy. And so Alan Dulles really helped, I think, keep the lid on, on, on the plots that were going on in the CIA. Do you think this obsession with Cuba and Castro was because of its proximity, because uh, it's so close and, oh my gosh, we can't have a communist state, like, what is it, 90 miles off, uh, off the U.S. shore? Or was it like, you know, just, uh, just business as usual for the Monroe Doctrine or a combination of these? Well, I think it's a combination. I, th I think that Kennedy was a cold warrior. Um, he was really determined to really stop the tide of communism and having a, a communist state 90 miles away was something that was pretty unacceptable to him. I uh, certainly wanted to do whatever he could to stop it. And of course, look, let's be honest here. I mean, con the, the Soviet communism was pretty malignant. It was pretty horrible. It was a horrible system. It enslaved people. And uh, Kennedy was right to try and stop it uh, whatever, whatever means possible. Not only were there plots around Castro, 
Uh, there were, supposedly at least, there were lots of plots kind of circling around Kennedy himself, and that th- there's a notion out there in the conspiracy sphere that if this particular plot that took his life on November 22nd, 63, hadn't worked, one of the other ones probably would have. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's right from uh, Oliver Stone's new documentary. The, the important part is to distinguish between a plot and a threat. Uh, there's always threats against presidents, happens all the time, but are they plots? And I see no evidence of plots in Chicago or Tampa, which is the two cities that they discuss in the documentary. There was a potential threat in Chicago, but I see no evidence of a plot in either city. So what? What are they? What do they think was it was the same thing? They were just going to shoot him as he drove by in one of those cities. Well, you know, you take Chicago. I mean, what happened in Chicago was um, there was this guy Thomas Arthur Valley. He was a former Marine. He was. Um, schizophrenic, had mental problems. He was an extreme right winger. And his landlady noticed some anti-Kennedy material in his apartment and she called the FBI. They called the Secret Service and they had him arrested uh, for making an illegal turn in traffic. And they found, you know, weapons and and uh, and uh, bullets in his in the trunk of his car. So they sort of detained him for a day and they ultimately released him. But there was no evidence that I could see of of an actual threat against Kennedy. And I I include in my book the Secret Service uh, Protective Research uh, Summary Sheet on Valley, which they really indicate he was no threat. Um, As far as for a plot, the only evidence for a plot in Chicago comes from Abraham Bolden, who was the Secret Service agent who was ultimately fired and brought to trial for for basically uh, bribery. He's the only source for a supposed plot. There's no other evidence. No other Secret Service agent backs him up. There's no documentary evidence of a plot. It just comes from him. And as as I show in my book, he has changed his story several times over the years about this plot. What do you think he was after? What was he trying to do? Just profit from it? I I don't know. I mean, he he only told the story years later, and then he told the story in many different ways. When he finally wrote his book um, several years ago about his life and what had happened to him, it's a pretty large book. It's like 300 pages. There's only two paragraphs about this plot. So that really tells me that this there's just nothing there to this to, to this at all. And, and as I show in my book, every time he tells that story, it changes. On the other hand, as we all know, memory is screwy. We think that, uh, you know, our eyes are like cameras and we capture everything, but that's not actually how it works. That's not actually, our hearing is is not a, a microphone and recording device. It all interfaces with the brain. The brain creates a model and that model is what we interact with. And so as a result, you know, when you watch uh, TV crime shows, cop shows, uh, courtroom shows, and so on, you'd think that, oh, eyewitness testimony, why that's the, the platinum standard. And yet, uh, to my understanding of law enforcement's actual attitude towards it is that eyewitness, even eyewitness testimony is really not trustworthy because the moment that another set of details or uh, another narrative gets in there it starts to mingle around in the brain and it's just uh, it's just not reliable that's a really good point and i bring, i have a note on memory in my book where i talk about this because uh, as as uh, jeremy gunn who is uh, executive director of the arb said he said the only worst thing that eyewitness testimony is 35 year old eyewitness testimony <laughs> 
and this is a problem you see over and over again in the, in the conspiracy community is they take eyewitness testimony years later and they think it is a video recorder that that is completely accurate and that nothing is ta has tampered with it and in fact it's just it's just not true um, you can see this in the medical evidence you know people 35 years later are remembering things well that, that just you know we know this this didn't happen that way right yeah i have to say if you if you want a good example of memory uh go to the deposition of john stringer who is the autopsy photographer he testified before the arb in 1998 and it's like a 200 page uh, deposition and over and over and over again he kept on saying i can't remember they would ask him all these questions and he was oh, my memory's not good i don't remember i'm not sure he fumbled on what kind of film he was using uh, over and over again, he did not remember things. And yet people will use that testimony as like, aha, look what he said here. He said this and approves that uh, without acknowledging the fact that his memory was very poor. We've seen, and again, this is reinforced by, by fiction, by, by TV, movies, books. Person A, whether it's a senator or a CEO, let's just say it's a CEO of a company, and you're going, look, did you know that the chemicals that you were dumping in that river would probably kill all the fish? Did, did you or did you not receive that report on April 10th, you know? And uh, the answer is, I cannot recall. And so as soon as somebody says now, I think those words are enough to cause suspicion in people who are already inclined towards suspiciousness. Well, that's true. And also keep in mind for that CEO, not to excuse him, but sometimes CEOs or head of organizations don't know all the details. We always believe, oh, they should know everything. Like J. Edgar Hoover continually misspoke about the JFK assassination. Um, he just didn't know a lot of the details sometimes. And you see this over and over again, where you, you know, Jesse Curry of the Dallas police, oh, well, he should know every single thing. Well, he actually didn't know every single thing. And so you know, and, and you see that in some of the analysis of conspiracy people of rooting slips about the CIA. Oh, you know, this, this report went by James Angleton's desk and he certainly knew about this. Well, you know, maybe the report went by his office. Who knows how much attention he paid to it in terms of reading it and understanding it. We just don't know. Now, one thing you mention uh, that you talk about in the book is um, allegations about General Curtis LeMay. What is that whole story? Well, General Curtis LeMay is, I guess, uh, one of the great villains to conspiracy theorists because uh, they certainly don't like his politics. And uh, he's sort of a good stand in for the military industrial complex and their plot to kill JFK because of his foreign policy. So in Oliver Stone's documentary series, they make two claims. The first claim is that LeMay was ordered not to arrive in uh, Andrews Air Force Base, or he decided not to go to Andrews Air Force Base. He was on holiday in Canada on November 22nd, and he disobeyed orders, and he flew into National Airport so that he could be closer to Bethesda, and then he went to the autopsy. So those are two sort of separate stories. He, he disobeyed orders. Flew to fly international, should have flown into Andrews, and then secondly that he went to the autopsy and sort of gloated. The truth is that Curtis LeMay was ordered not to go to Andrews Air Force Base because there was this decision that uh, very few people should be there to meet the plane. Only Robert Kennedy, uh, Maxwell Taylor, and I think one other general, that was it 
to meet the plane. They did not want to have a huge entourage there. And so there was an order given to LeMay to go to a national. And the second thing is, was he at the autopsy? Well, the only person who says he was there was a, a Navy corpsman, O'Connor, Paul O'Connor, who claimed he was there. And and like um, other people, his, his story kept on changing over the years. So it started out that LeMay was there uh, in the audience, and then LeMay was there smoking a cigar, and then it was that Humes, the autopsist, told O'Connor to go tell LeMay to put out the, the cigar, and then it was LeMay blew smoke back in O'Connor's face. Um, the story kept on changing, and nobody can corroborate the fact that LeMay was there. And in fact, he's not even on, he's not on the list of attendees um, that was put together by the two FBI agents who were there. So why do you think people just focused on him just because they didn't like him? They were like, let's put him there. Yeah, he's, an, he's a, an easy villain. He's a nice stand-in for the military-industrial complex. We know he didn't like Kennedy, uh, and we know that he had these sort of kooky right-wing politics. So it's an easy sort of villain, and somehow they've made up these stories to sort of convince us that he was gloating and uh, may have been in on the plot. Let's just play devil's advocate and say, okay, let's just assume that's true. So this guy engineers the assassination of the President of the United States and gets away with it. And then he goes, you know, I'm going to go into that room and just gloat at the dead corpse. I mean, this seems foolish. It's something you would do in a movie because it's visual and it gives us some insight into the character. I don't know if a real human being would do that. No, my joke is that the next time they tell the story, you'll have an exploding cigar. <laughs> and his beard fell out. Yeah, and, and I found a, some testimony of one of Kennedy's aides at the Kennedy Library who said, look, the one thing you have to remember, know about General LeMay is that Kennedy did not take his advice seriously because he disagreed with LeMay. But the reason he had LeMay there as head of the Air Force was that he was a terrific um, leader, terrific organizer of the Air Force. And that's what Kennedy appreciated. He did his job really well. Um, and yeah, I'll ignore his political advice. And then, uh, you know, talking about people in a position of authority, there's a lot of chatter that Dr. Berkeley, who is Kennedy's physician, uh, was also in on it, that he helped cover up medical evidence. Yeah, he is another one of the villains in uh, JFK Destiny Betrayed, and it's quite sad. He was uh, a political, but he loved Kennedy so much that he, he began to uh, to vote as a, for the Democrats. Um, in, in, in the documentary series, they claim that he covered up the medical evidence, that he, he had information about a, a supposed conspiracy. What is interesting here, is, and, and what my friend Paul Hoke found out, was that Berkeley did suspect there was a conspiracy. And he told a couple of people that. But the reason that he suspected a conspiracy was not because of his involvement with the medical evidence. It was just he had been reading some conspiracy books, and he had this feeling that Oswald had too much money to do the things that he claimed to do. It had nothing to do with the medical evidence, you know? And so it's really kind of sad that Berkeley and his family gets dragged into it. Um, it's, it's, it's really reckless. And you see this over and over again, where innocent people get dragged into a supposed conspiracy or a supposed cover-up, and it, it hurts the family. You see that right now with Ruth Payne. There's a documentary out on Ruth Payne sort of trying to claim that, you know, maybe she was a CIA agent. You know, this is damaging. And there were other people who were hurt over the course of the years 
Carlos Bringier, who was the anti-Castro Cuban in New Orleans, who was under investigation by Garrison, his wife had a miscarriage uh, during the Garrison investigation because she was so worried that her husband was going to be arrested. Right, right. I mean, you know, I always think of um, a line from All the President's Men about the Watergate uh, investigation uh, from the Washington Post. In the early days of uh, Woodward and Bernstein, they're trying to pitch like, hey, we think there might be something to this. This, this seems kind of screwy. And one of the senior editors says to, to Bradley, I don't believe the story. Why would the Republicans do it? And, you know, that seems like the reasonable thing. And yet it will turn out after much, much hard work and much denial that they did, in fact, do it. And I think this is one of those I often hear Kennedy and Watergate sort of spoken of together this idea of, yeah, but, you know, if you just listened to the uh, official sources during the Watergate investigation, you would also say, yeah, it does seem crazy. Why would they do this? And yet they did. And so, therefore, can't we now retroactively sort of ascribe that guiltiness to whoever I've decided to point the finger at when it comes to Kennedy? That's really true. Also, I would point out that, in fact, there was a cover-up of the JFK assassination, as we know, the CIA covered up the anti-Castro plots. The FBI covered up the destruction of the Oswald note. Um, everybody was doing their own little bit of covering up. These cover-ups um, sort of made it look like perhaps there was a conspiracy. Right. But in fact, it was just a bunch of people trying not to get their careers destroyed. <laughs> yeah, covering their asses. Yeah, exactly. CYA, it's not always a good idea. Now, many, many years ago... I met a guy when I was living in uh, in Brno, the second city of the Czech Republic. I met a guy who called himself a professional JFK researcher. Uh, he'd spent years and years and years researching the Kennedy assassination. He said, Oliver Stone's JFK is basically the true story, except that every character in there is actually somewhere between three and eight other people. And he said the character of X... Donald Sutherland playing him, is actually four different sources. And that's the guy that comes out with this whole crazy story about there being a newspaper article in Australia reporting on the assassination, but whoever did this supposedly forgot about time zones, which seems like a big oversight. Uh, and so it was published before the assassination actually took place. Yeah, well, first of all, that was New Zealand. But, um, ah. well, actually, X was two people. So it was Fletcher Prouty, who had worked in the Pentagon and retired in uh, 1963 or 64. Um, and it was also Richard Case Nagel was the other person X was, was, was uh, based on. Richard Case Nagel was a um, career military man who served admirably in the Korean War. He was in a plane crash in the mid-1950s. He was the sole survivor, and he suffered from organic brain damage. And from that point on, he became super paranoid and went just completely off the rails. He had to be dismissed from the military for medical purposes, and then he became a darling of... Uh, Dick Russell and some of the other conspiracy theorists. He made up a lot of stories. Um, so did Fletcher Prouty. Uh, such as? Well, Fletcher Prouty came up with all these stories about how, well, you know, the Secret Service didn't protect Kennedy and they were called off and they didn't follow procedure. And so he was called to testify by the ARRB. And I've posted this on my blog, the, not only the transcript, but also analyses. And they found... Um, he couldn't back up any of his allegations. His knowledge of presidential protection was only based on one trip 
that he went with Eisenhower in the mid 50s to Mexico City, where, of course, um, protection in a foreign country is very, very different from protection in the domestic United States. And so they found that he knew actually very little about presidential protection and the protocols and that none of his stories he could back up. His whole story about the New Zealand newspapers is just absolutely crazy because of the time zone difference. And I do an analysis on my blog. I actually have the New Zealand newspapers on my blog, um, and there's just nothing unusual about it. He wondered how come they had a picture of Lee Harvey Oswald from 1959. Well, the wire services had that picture because he defected in 1959. His picture was all over the papers, uh, all over the wire services back then. So they had it. Uh, interesting note for people listening, um, links to some of these blog posts and so on that Mr. Litwin has are included at the bottom of the uh, episode notes for this episode. So uh, just go to the Podbean uh, website and uh, look under more info and there'll be links aplenty for you to peruse at your leisure. People I know, friends of mine who are still very much on the no, 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 it was all a conspiracy um, bandwagon often point, of course, to Jack Ruby as well. Like that Ruby knew Oswald, that in the footage you can see when he shouts, hey, Oswald, and Oswald immediately says, I'm just a patsy. And when you look at that footage with it in your mind that they did know each other and the moment he saw Jack Ruby, he went, uh-oh, I'm a dead man. But if you look at it with a different narrative that they don't know each other, then the footage kind of reinforces that as well uh but i don't think they did know each other they hadn't actually met there's this idea that you know oswald had hung out in ruby's nightclub but i don't think there's any evidence of that no i mean this is something conspiracy theorists have been trying to prove a relationship for decades and there is no evidence that they ever met and of course oswald uh didn't drink he wasn't the kind of person who would go to a ruby nightclub um you know he didn't have any money yeah, because it was kind of skanky, right? It was kind of it's not a it's not a high end place. Yeah, it's a strip club, and yeah, and it's just not the kind of place for him. And in fact, his wife would say every night he was at home. So it's just there's no evidence that they met. Now, JFK Destiny Betrayed tries to make it seem like Ruby was aware of some sort of grand conspiracy, and they play a little video clip from one of his uh, interviews while he was appealing his conviction. I actually found additional footage from the same interview. And when you actually look at the additional footage, he was really kind of angry because he wanted the results of his lie detector test to become public. Ruby was trying to prove to the world that he actually did shoot Oswald alone. There was no conspiracy. And this all relates back to his um, um, growing up. Ruby was Jewish. He grew up in a strict Jewish home where his parents unfortunately fought. They spoke Yiddish. And he experienced a lot of anti-Semitism over the years. And he didn't take it. He was always getting involved in fights and beating people up who he thought were, were anti-Semitic. The day of the assassination, November 22nd, 1963, there was a big ad in the, in the Dallas Morning News criticizing Kennedy. Full page ad. And the bottom of the ad, it was signed Bernard Weissman, Jewish name. And Ruby saw that, and he did not like that. And after the assassination, that came back to him, and he wondered, were, were, were Jews involved in the assassination? It started to eat at him, and he actually went to the post office box for Bernard Weissman to see if they would tell him who this guy was. <laughs> Which they did not, I'm assuming. Of course, they wouldn't. He saw there was mail in the post office box. And then around Dallas at the time, there were a lot of impeach Earl Warren signs, also with the post office box. 
And so he thought they were linked. And he just started to go crazy. And when he killed Oswald, um, it was an impulsive act. And like any impulsive act, after the fact, you try and come up with excuses. Why did you do it? And this is why Ruby came up with many different excuses from... I wanted to save Jackie Kennedy from coming to a trial, to the Jews had balls, um, et cetera, et cetera. He came up with several different explanations. But this whole thing backfired on him because the far right, like the John Birch Society, started to accuse him, Jack Rubenstein, his real name, of being involved in a conspiracy to kill Kennedy, and, and thus the Jews were involved in a conspiracy. Right. <laughs> and Ruby saw this, and he started to have a mental breakdown because he thought that the result of this would be a second Holocaust, that Jews would be blamed for the assassination, there would be a second Holocaust, and um, he started telling his um, psychiatric examiners that around him Jews were being murdered. Right, though, though he had no evidence of this. No, he tried to warn his brothers and his sister that they were in danger because there was a second Holocaust. And the reason he wanted to go to Washington, the reason he asked the Warren Commission to go to Washington, and it's right in his testimony, he wanted to warn Lyndon Johnson about a second Holocaust. <laughs> right. The now president of the United States doesn't have information about this, but I do. <laughs> yep. And so he just went off the walls crazy. And so I include some of that material in my book. What's really interesting is that um, he told Dr. Werner Tutor Tutor asked Ruby, was there a conspiracy to kill Kennedy? And and Ruby said there was. And so Tutor said, well, well, what happened? And Ruby got him a copy of Thomas Buchanan's book, Who Killed Kennedy? Ruby was reading conspiracy books by then. And so that was the only knowledge he had of a conspiracy came out of a book. Oliver Stone, unfortunately, going down this rabbit hole again with some stories. There's a lot of stories in his documentary series that are so easy to debunk that I'm really quite astonished that he included some of this material. Uh, you can see this in my book. I mean, that's why I had such a great time. I was actually blogging every single day with a new error or, or misspeak in, 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 in his documentary series. He, he just bought into a whole lot of conspiracy nonsense that was being peddled by a variety of conspiracy theorists. And I wish somebody would actually tell him, look, you know, you've, you've been sold a bill of goods. There's no there there. Right. I mean, yeah, why? Because he's really, all these years later, he's still doing stuff about this. Uh, why can't he let this go? I, I guess I guess if you believe that it was this horrible thing, then it's like, okay, and this is why the, you know, the country is so messed up now. Yet, you know, you always have to ask who benefits. And I guess my question is, is, if this was a big plot to get rid of Kennedy, there must have been, it wasn't just, hey, let's get rid of Kennedy. There must have been, uh, you know, a plan for, because we want to do these things and he'll get in our way and so will Bobby and, and all the rest. And yet the world, certainly the United States, after that assassination, 60s, 70s, into, uh, into the 80s, uh, there's no cohesive anything that I can see. Uh, what I actually see is a is a liberalizing of society, which I think if Kennedy had survived and his brother had uh, become president after him, I think we would have seen anyway. So I don't really see how the right wing scored a victory here if they're the ones behind his death. Well, you're being rational. Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, you know, unfortunately, some of the people, um, the conspiracy theorists, particularly the ones on the left, well, now on the right, too, 
like to think that the big, the, the deep state is behind this and that they don't like the fact that the United States has gotten involved in a variety of foreign entanglements, whatever you may think about them. And I think it's all connected down to this coup d'etat in 1963. And for Oliver Stone, Oliver Stone was stung by criticism of JFK in 1992. This new documentary series is his way of getting back at all those critics sort of saying, hey, I was right. Look at all the evidence here, all the new evidence. I was right. What's interesting is, you know what's not in his documentary series? There's no Jim Garrison. Right, which is what the, which is the film. Yeah, Jim Garrison is mentioned once in these four hours of documentary series. Just once he's mentioned, um, all of a sudden he's disappeared. He was the centerpiece of JFK, and now he's gone. So why is that? Yeah, maybe because he went, okay, so that was the wrong tree to bark up, but I got a whole bunch of other trees. <laughs> exactly. Yep, exactly. The wrong tree, and can't do that again. So 60 years later, we're still talking about it, maybe because it's the only assassination in living memory of a uh, an American world leader anyway, though it was hardly the first assassination. Uh, let's hope it was the last, however. Nonetheless, uh, the conspiracy-minded on the left and the right both like to talk about it uh, in detail. And uh, as we mentioned the last time Mr. Litwin and I spoke, there are even ideas that he was killed because uh, he was going to reveal that Eisenhower had made a deal with aliens, that he was killed by an alien-built gas gun, and, and it just goes on and on. JFK, I've joked in the past, is a sort of a gateway drug for conspiracy thinking for many people, and it is certainly, for those so inclined, the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, because there's just so much detail. Mr. Fred Litwin has been my guest. He is the author of I Was a Teenage Cons uh, JFK Conspiracy Freak and On the Trail of Delusion, looking at Jim Garrison. And his newest book is Film Flam, The Demagogue of Dealey Plaza, which kind of picks apart Oliver Stone's movie JFK and his more recent documentary in which he seems to be saying, I was wrong about the specifics in that movie, but I'm right about other things. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yes. Right. And you said you've accumulated so much stuff, you think you got another book or two on this subject in you. Yes, well, my next book, and I, uh, or next two books, but my next book is going to be uh, called uh, Heritage of Nonsense, Tales of Mystery and Imagination from Jim Garrison. <laughs> and this will go back to, uh, you know, my last book, I included a whole variety of stories about Jim Garrison was not about Clay Shaw. Other stories, other craziness. Well, I've got so many other stories I have to tell that it's going to be a whole other book of minor stories about Jim Garrison, but important conspiracy stories that um, that I, I need to debunk. Like the shot from the sewer, as a good example. Uh, what is that? Oh, Jim Garrison thought that there was a shot from the storm drain on Elm Street, that somebody was positioned inside the storm drain and they escaped through the sewer system after the assassination and uh so i want to go into that in some more detail it's a lot of there's a lot of bullets flying around that uh <laughs> that stretch of road oh it's amazing <laughs> and and uh, you know i mean assassins were everywhere it's everywhere who wasn't an assassin out there exactly that one kid do you get any flack from like garrison's family or stone's people because you're spending now this if you're, you're writing now another book so there'll be two books about garrison like, you're, you're really focusing on this guy. You, do you get, like, 
communications from them? Like, what the hell do you want, pal? Just stop. No, I have nothing from the Garrison family. And I, I get a lot of flack, obviously, from conspiracy theorists like James Diogenio, who is a big fan of Garrison. He actually wrote five articles about me last year, 30,000 words. Wow, that's flattering. I couldn't get my best friend to write 30,000 words about me. <laughs> Um, so he, he he really goes after me, and he's a fairly easy target. Um, I should say that it's not so much Garrison. The, the stories in my next book, while they are associated with Garrison, they're sort of uh, standard conspiracy stories, like Rose Sheremy. I'm going to go into the Rose Sheremy story. It started with Garrison, but didn't end with him. And so I want to debunk Rose Sheremy and Richard Case Nagel and the Tramps. I want to talk about the three Tramps. Uh, stuff like that. All right. Well, so for people who are interested in the events surrounding November 22nd, 1963 in Dallas, Texas, uh, there is plenty out there for you to chew on and plenty more coming from my guest, Fred Litwin, whose newest book, Film Flam, The Demagogue of Dealey Plaza, is now available uh, via Amazon. Is it also available in bookshops? Selected bookshops. I'm not sure where it'll be, which bookshops will carry it. You'll have to ask for it. It's also on Kobo, Barnes & Noble, um, and iTunes. Excellent, excellent. And it's yeah, people can get a physical book as well, not just an e-book. Yes, yes, it's in print. There, there you go. I just Isn't that nicer? It just seems more permanent. Me too, I agree. <laughs> Though, of course, I think the digital one is probably actually more permanent. But, you know, whatever. Well, the nice thing about the digital one is, is it's so nice to search and all the JPEGs can be uh, enlarged and uh, are much clearer. Right, sure. That makes sense. All right. Well, I'd like to thank Mr. Litwin for talking to me today. Thank you, sir. It's uh, It's been stimulating. Thank you very much. It was great being here. And uh, again, thank you, everybody out there for listening to this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse. A reminder again that if you check the episode notes and description for this episode, uh, there will be lots and lots of helpful links to the things Mr. Litwin and I talked about. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.